podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 24th of June. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network. allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, keep your data safe. LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN. You get 20% off at checkout. Also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide, homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, apologies for no podcast yesterday. Life gets in the way sometimes, but we are back today. And uh, we've got four European Championship games to go over. So in Group E, Sweden 3, Poland 2, really exciting game. The Swedes looked very, very good. They took their foot off the off the gas a little bit. Lewandowski scored a worldie, and then the Swedes got sloppy for the second. But they fought back with, with Klassen's late goal to win the game. Notable in this game, Kulisevsky back, comes off the bench, creates two goals, causes Poland lots of problems. Teams are going to struggle to deal with him and Isaac. That kind of pace, that kind of power, that kind of build, the strength, dribbling ability, they're going to make Switzerland a tough team to beat. They're compact at the back. None of the defenders are individual stars. Obviously, Lindelof is the best known of them. But Lustig and Augustin as the fullbacks, both good players. Danielson is solid. Across the midfield, it's three hardworking lads in Larson, Olsen and Ekdal. And then Forsberg is a goal threat. And you get him with Isaac. And I assume we will see Kulisevsky in the next game, that's going to be potent. That's going to be difficult to stop. They go through as group winners. Congrats to them. Delighted for them. They have absolutely earned it. Disappointed, obviously, in in the polls. They just never really got going. The poor first game against Slovakia, Lewandowski struggled. He did have two good games against Spain and now Sweden. But... Losing to Slovakia really put them on the back foot and really put them behind the eight ball. And unfortunately, um, it was too much for them to overcome. I do think Lewandowski answered a lot of his critics, though. There was a lot of people claiming, you know, he's oh, he's not the same outside of the, the comfort of Bayern Munich after the first game. He was good against Spain. He was good yesterday. Now, he did have... He did have a dreadful miss. He hits the crossbar with a header. He hits the crossbar with the rebound. And then the ball comes back and kind of gets stuck between his legs. And it's very, very unfortunate. But I, I think Poland, I don't think they can have many, many complaints, many arguments about, about going home. Slovakia, on the other hand, should be ashamed of themselves. Gave themselves a great starting point by beating the Poles. 
unfortunate to lose to Sweden. But complete capitulation in this one. Playing well, give away a penalty. Dubravka makes the save. He makes a couple of other great saves. And then on the half-hour mark, it's it's ludicrous. Sarabia shot hits the bar, goes straight up in the air, bounces and goes straight up in the air. And as it comes down, whether he has the sun in his eyes, whether he misjudges his jump, I don't know. But Dubravka slaps the ball, volleyball style, into his own net. And then the Slovakians just fell apart. He was the basket case from then on. The defence got progressively worse. And as the defence fell off, which had been their strength, everything else just was a mess. Laporte makes it 2-0 with a looped header on 48, three minutes into added time in the first half. Sarabia at the end of a good move involving Busquets and Alba. Ferran Torres at the end of a good move. And then another own goal on 71. Uh, Again, you have to point the finger at Dubravka. Comes out half-heartedly towards Pau Torres, who didn't go for the ball full-blooded himself. Gets nowhere near it. His header gets uh, Torres' header gets deflected into the back of the net. Spain win 5-0, but it's an unimpressive 5-0. I don't think you can take too much from that game, other than the fact that they look so much better with Sergio Busquets in the team than they did with Rodri. Busquets was brilliant. Now, he's not the player he was, and he doesn't have... He never had great speed to begin with, but his mind works so much quicker than everybody else's. What he can't do with his legs, he does with his brain, and he just happens to be in the right place all the time. He will have trouble against teams that put energy around him and try and harry him and force him off the ball, just try and run by him. But what a performance yesterday. I thought Pedri was excellent as well. The front three didn't work, even though Sarabia got a goal. The guy's just a long way short of what Spain should have in their team. Morata missed the penalty. Moreno doesn't look comfortable in the wide forward roles. I don't know what Ayarzabal has to do to start. Um, but I'd like to see Moreno start through the middle and Ayarzabal off the wing. Luis Enrique, to me, I, I think he's massively overrated as manager because of that one season with Barca. He's got a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. They go through in second place. They'll face Croatia in the... Uh, in the round of 16. That's going to be a tough game. Croats obviously very poor against England. Better against the Czechs, though not particularly brilliant. Much better against the Scots. Modric, the genius that he is, with with the exceptional goal to break a tight game. If Croatia play well, they will cause Spain lots and lots of trouble. Uh, I should have mentioned that Sweden will play Ukraine. And that's a good path for Sweden. They're more than capable of beating Ukraine. The battle of that Swedish attack against Ukraine's defence, which I think is their strong point, should be very interesting. But uh, that's two good ties balanced out. In Group F, one of the most mental two hours I think we'll ever witness in a competition, where at different points... Germany were going home. Portugal were going home. In the end, it's Hungary who go home. They can feel wronged. Through 
through no fault of their own, they got stuck in the in the toughest group. I mean, you get put in with three of the top six or seven teams in the world. They matched Portugal for 83 minutes and got undone by a fluke and then a penalty. They got a draw with France. They largely outplayed the Germans and got a draw. And yet home they go. Matched each of them. They were behind in the tournament for seven minutes total. And they're out. They'd gone 1-0 up. They'd started really well. They looked like they had a real plan. Slya scores after 11 minutes. Kai Havertz makes it 1-1 on 66. Calamity then in the German defence. I don't know what Leroy Sané was doing. Uh, but Schaefer scores on 68. And then Leon Goretzka off the bench to rescue Germany on 84. Send them through and send Hungary home. Germany need to get their act together. Now, we know they're going to face England. We know the Germans are capable of so much more. We saw it against Portugal. They were sensational against Portugal for about 65 minutes. They're going to need to be like that again against England. England aren't playing well. But England's first half against the Czechs was probably the best that they've played for a sustained period. Saka was exceptional. If Germany play like they did against Portugal, they can wipe the floor with England. But England know what the blueprint is to disrupt this German team. Don't let them have the ball in advanced wide positions. Don't allow Kimmich and Gosens the freedom of the park. Germany have questions to answer in the centre midfield. The Gundogan-Kruis pairing has not worked. It's clear Goretzka needs to start next to one of them, probably Kruis. Gundogan's not having a good tournament. Um, in fact, we discussed this on the Anfield Index Euro Incision podcast this morning with Stefan Carl Matchett. Of the Man City players at these Euros, Zinchenko did pretty well. He's not a nailed-on starter for City. Ferran has been okay. But other than Raheem Sterling, their big names have struggled. Diaz was a disaster. Laporte hasn't been good. Rodri hasn't been good. Bernardo hasn't been particularly good. De Bruyne obviously was out, was out injured. He's done well in the time he's been on the pitch. But a lot of the City players just are struggling outside of Pep's system, outside of dominating the ball. And Gundogan has been won. At City, his lack of pace isn't an issue as he makes his runs into the box because City are probing and looking for an opening and then exploding. The Germans just explode straight away and he doesn't have the foot speed to get up into the box. There was a moment in that Portugal game where Gosens cut the ball back to the edge of the area where you would hope that your attacking midfielder is arriving and Gundogan's 15 yards behind the ball. Same thing happened last night. Ball goes wide, gets cut back, and there's just no German player arriving on the edge of the box. Contrast that with later in the game when Goretzka comes on and he's arriving late in the box at pace, with power, and smacking the ball home. You'd fancy Germany to beat England. History, mentality, better manager, better goalkeeper. Neither defence are particularly good. I think Southgate's going to be quite conservative in how he sets the team up. I think he'll go Rice, Phillips and Mount as a three in front of a back five with Sterling and Kane just left to their own devices up front. And while 
the Germans haven't yet fully clicked an attack. Havertz is playing pretty well. Muller was really good against Portugal. Gnabry has shown flashes. He's not a nine. That needs to stop. Sané has been a disaster, but that's, you know, by the by. But that front three, compared to the England front two, where Sterling is playing well as two goals, and his general play has been quite good. The first game, he he's a little bit ropey with his touch in the first game, but he's gotten better. Kane has been awful. So the Germans, I think, will be favourite to get through. France topped the group after a 2-2 draw with Portugal. Uh, two penalties from Cristiano Ronaldo give Portugal their two goals. A penalty and a lovely finish by Benzema uh, in reply for the French. That's 109 international goals for Cristiano. Five in this tournament. Um, three penalties in the two tap-ins. I don't think he's playing particularly well, but let's be fair. He's not asked to do anything else. His job is literally stand around the box and wait for the ball. Um, the team functions to give him service. Whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, we'll find out. They certainly haven't looked impressive in this competition. They were they were the better team last night, largely because Renato Sanchez put on a clinic in midfield. Pogba was excellent for the French, it should be said, and it must be really frustrating for United fans to see him play like that and actually care and then watch the dreck he serves up every week for United. But Ronaldo Sanchez, I thought, was the best player on the pitch. I mean, his on-ball work was good. His off-ball work was incredible. The disruption he caused in that French midfield, they could get nothing going. They were literally relying on Pogba trying to play long passes. And fair play to him. He managed it, but... Renato just took it as a personal affront that people in England doubted him and that people in England laud N'Golo Kante, and rightly so, he's he's tremendous, but Renato wiped him off the pitch last night. It wasn't even a close battle. Renato's power, his just force, his will, incredible player. He's going to make somebody very happy this summer when they buy him. He's available at a good price and he'll make somebody very, very happy. Uh, more on that later. Um, so Portugal and France both through Portugal will play Belgium not the ideal draw nobody really wanted Belgium in the next round and the fact that the winner gets the winner of Italy and Austria and then the winner of that likely plays France it, it's a very very difficult top half of the draw uh, Belgium-Portugal will be interesting you wouldn't necessarily trust either defence I would have said pre-tournament, Belgium have the advantage in midfield. But when you see Renato in that form and you factor in Axel Witzel not at 100%, Thielemans not ideal in a two if the other one is De Bruyne. And if a, De Bruyne is in the front three, that's fine. But if it's, Thiel if it's Thielemans and then Donker, I don't know if that, is going to be able to cope with what Portugal are going to bring in midfield. However, that Portuguese attack is their strong point. The Belgian attack is even better. Lukaku is in incredible form. Player of the tournament so far for me. Three games, three great performances. Him against Diaz could be could be carnage. Uh, Diaz is going to need to get his act together. If De Bruyne is 
in the front three. That's all that creativity going there. I fancy Belgium to go through. We've got Wales, Denmark, Italy, Austria, Netherlands, Czech Republic, Belgium, Portugal, Croatia, Spain, France gets Switzerland. Should be straightforward for them. England, Germany, Sweden, Ukraine. It's a really tidy lineup. The top half of the draw, obviously the more difficult half. The bottom half shapes up well for whoever comes out of that England-Germany game to likely meet the Netherlands in the semi-finals. Whereas on the other half, you've got Belgium, you've got Portugal, you've got France, you've got Croatia, Spain and Italy, all in that top half. Much, much more difficult. Euros are fun. The Euros have been fun, it must be said. I still don't like the fact that spread all over Europe. I, I would prefer it in a centralised location. But it has been interesting to see the different fan cultures at each game, to see the different levels of crowds at each game, the kind of impact that being at home can have on some teams in a positive way and then in a negative way for others. I don't think England have performed well at home. And I wonder if that's the pressure of playing at home that's that's told against them. I don't think Spain looked particularly good at home, uh, other than obviously yesterday in 35-degree heat in Sevilla. Um, and again, the Germans, I don't think the Germans have necessarily performed all that well um, in Munich. So it'll be a fun round of 16. Tournament really kicks on. Those games take place Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Then we get Wednesday, Thursday off. Quarterfinals will be Friday and then Saturday. Sunday, Monday off. Semi-finals are Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the final is on the Sunday, the 11th. So we are motoring. More games are, are done than yet left to play. So it's just the spacing of the games is what will slow us down a little bit. But these round of 16 games should be fun. There's there's a couple of standouts. I think Wales-Denmark will be a standout game because they're both underdog teams, both probably better without the ball. I think most of the world is going to be supporting Denmark, obviously, because of what happened with Ericsson. But the Welsh will be confident. They've, they came through a tough group. They'll be fairly confident. Uh, Netherlands-Czech Republic will be interesting. The Netherlands' defence hasn't looked entirely perfect. And obviously Schick was in very good form. Belgium-Portugal is a standout game. Croatia-Spain, while neither team are what they were, should be fun because they're still two talented teams. Two teams that have seen their best days and are still kind of hanging on at the highest level. But it should be a good game. Uh, England-Germany will be a cracker, I think. And then that Sweden-Ukraine game. Again, I think it's really well balanced. I like Sweden's chances, I have to say. Um, right. What we're going to do, we're going to take an early break, and then when we come back, we have uh, some news and then some Twitter questions to get into. So we'll see you in a minute. Right. Welcome back. Uh, we have some news to go through. So it looks like Lucian Favre is about to take charge of Crystal Palace. Uh, he has apparently agreed a contract to replace Roy Hodgson and become their new manager. Uh, the 63-year-old Swiss last was in charge of Borussia Dortmund. Didn't go particularly well at Dortmund, it must be said. Uh, neither did his time at Nice. But at Gladbach, he created a really, really entertaining team. He did pretty well at Hertha Berlin before that. 
And then prior to that, with, with Servet and, and Zurich, um, FC Zurich, he did well. Now, you, you look at his winning percentage with Dortmund and say, oh, well, 61.8% is, is good. But look at the caliber of talent he had around him. And they never came close to challenging for a title. And look where they were when he got dismissed. No chance of Champions League and eventually clawed the way back into it. He is a good manager. He's a unique type of manager. He's got really clever ideas. He overcomplicates things a little bit. The issue with the Palace job this summer is just how much work there is to do. There's an awful lot of work to do with the squad, trying to build it back out, figure out what players you want to keep, try and bring in new players, obviously. So a lot of things, a lot of things to to get done before you can even really start to implementing your plan. Um, I wish him all the best. I, I like that Palace have been brave. I don't know that he was on the original shortlist, um, but like Nuno, he wasn't on the original shortlist either. So maybe it was just an opportunity and they've pivoted and, and, and gone for it. It's a risk. It's a gamble, but you have to make big moves. You have to make big moves at times. Uh, on the, the topic of Crystal Palace, I watched the new Amazon documentary, uh, When Eagles Dare. Really, really good. Really, really good. Five-part documentary based on their 2012-2013 season uh, promotion from the Championship into the Premier League. And you forget how bad things were going at Palace when Simon Jordan was, was, was in charge of the club. When he owned the club, it was a train wreck. No investment in the training ground. The academy was falling apart. They were on the, the he didn't own the stadium. They were on the brink of going out of business. And yet, three short years later, Steve Parrish and these these other fans that had bought the club have them in the Premier League. The team they came up with. I mean, talk about an island of misfit toys. Players that had just been discarded. They just picked them up off the scrap heap. Damian Delaney, Mila Yednak, players that nobody else was looking at. Dougie Friedman, to his credit, brought them in, formed a team, then took a decision that I think he probably regrets to this day to go to Bolton. Ian Holloway comes in, tries to change things. It's all a bit messy, but they eventually come up. It's a great story. It's a mix of footage from that season that was filmed at the time that just never got released and modern-day interviews with the likes of Parrish, Delaney, Wilf Zaha, Yednak, um, Julian Belletti, Johnny Williams, Peter Ramage. It's really, really good. I highly recommend it. When Eagle's there, it's on Amazon, five parts, all less than an hour. Well worth your time. Holloway, you will just... A door coming out of it because the man's just a lunatic. But the only thing that I, the only negative I thought I took from it is, is Zaha. Now, nothing to do with him, but the approach that was taken to his development in those early years, I think is what has held him back as a player. He was basically told. Go and express yourself. He was never asked to play as part of a structure. He was given complete license 
to just play as he wanted to play. Now, Will Zaha, from a talent point of view, belongs at a top, top, top club. From a talent point of view, he is utterly sensational. The problem is he was never developed tactically. Now, I do think he's a clever player, but I wonder, at the age he's at now, is it too late to get him to change his ways and fit into a structure? He's 28. He turns 29 this year. I think his opportunity to go to a a top four, top six club may have passed him by. If I was Arsenal, I've got enough wide options. If I'm Spurs, maybe I gamble. Maybe if I'm Spurs, I gamble and go for him and play him off the right with Son on the left and Kane through the middle if you keep Kane. But Liverpool won't want him. City won't want him. United had him and, and let him go. Chelsea won't want him. I don't know that Leicester would be a move that would appeal to him as good as Leicester are. They're obviously a much better team than than Palace. But I don't know that that would appeal to him. I think Everton could appeal. It's a big club. Would they want him? I don't know. If Grealish leaves Villa, maybe they could use some of that money for Wilf. I don't know if they'd have the money without that. I don't know what Palace will want. 40, 45 million, probably. It's probably a long way short of the 70, 80 million they were demanding three years ago. He's such a talented player. And he's such a likable guy. He comes across so well in, in the interviews on When Eagles Dare. But I just wonder, at, at, 29, at 28 pushing 29... Has he missed his chance to join a top club? I think he'd have more chance in going to a top club from one of the other top five leagues. It's just that they won't have the money for him. Like Inter are broke. Juventus, I don't think, would want him. They've got good good wide options. Don't think he's really a fit for Milan. Don't think they have the money either. Don't think he'd fit under Simeone. Real wouldn't want him. Barca wouldn't want him. Sevilla maybe, but it could could they afford him? I don't know. A front three of him, and Naziri, and Lucas Acampus will be an awful lot of fun. Um, nobody in France, unless Nice, they've got the money. Whether they they have the want, I don't know. Whether he'd want to go there, I don't know. And then in Germany, I think if he was three or four years younger, Dortmund could look at him as a Sancho replacement if Sancho goes. But aside from that, I mean, Bayern, I don't think, would want him. But maybe if, if Kingsley Coleman leaves Bayern and Bayern look around and think, you know what, let's go get Zaha. But again, with his age, I'm just not sure. There's part of me that would love to see Liverpool just go, you know what, let's take a gamble. Let's just go and get him and see what happens. Because the talent is just ferocious. And he plays with a real passion that I love. He loves to go and embarrass people. He's one of the last mavericks in the game, but I just, I don't know. But those early years at Palace, where successive managers just told him, just go and play your game. I really do think that has hampered Wolf Zaha's career. Uh, moving on, Jaden Sancho, Allegedly, Manchester United have made another bid. Uh, They've increased their bid 
to uh, 72.6 million pounds, including add-ons. Dortmund want 85 million pounds plus add-ons. This doesn't seem like a serious bid again. Now, all the United-based journalists have said there's confidence a deal can be agreed. Really? Because it's one thing making the offer, and the offers are still well short of what Dortmund have asked for. But what's the payment structure? What's the time scale? How much are you paying up front? United just released more of their accounts. They're not pretty. They're really not pretty. United are going to take a walloping for the last 12 months. I don't know. I, to me, it doesn't seem like a deal is close. Now, maybe it is, but it just does not seem like a deal is very close. It, it seems like the word that it is close is coming strictly from United, not from Dortmund. Christian Falk and Romano, the, the twin spoofers who spent all last season weaving tales about how close everything were, are two of those pushing it. And obviously the, the local United journalists who've been briefed by the club. But it wouldn't at all surprise me if, I think it's Neil Ashton, isn't that his name? The the journalist who went off to work for United as the head of PR, or head of, head of communications, I think is his actual title. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he's brief and Falcon and Romano. I think they're trying to put pressure on Dortmund. It was the timing of it was very, very weird as well. Like the timing of this bid was really, really weird. I don't think that bid will get accepted. I'd imagine it's already been dismissed. If it exists, if it exists, this is apparently their second offer. But yet the same journalist told us a week ago they'd already made their second offer. So who knows? Who knows? The reports yesterday before any of this were that Dortmund had serious doubts that United were serious about buying Sancho. Um, so we'll wait and see. There is a report. I can't believe I'm going to say this. There is a report in The Athletic today that Tottenham have agreed terms and a transfer fee for a mystery player. And that the new manager, whoever that may be, they still don't know, will decide whether or not they want the player. If it's true, my guess is it's Joachim Anderson. I think he's the one. Leo, uh, sorry, Leon wants to sell. He wants to stay in the Premier League. Specifically, he wants to stay in London. He had a really impressive season with Fulham. Despite their relegation, that was all on Parker. He was really good and transformed them into a good defensive team. I would guess it's him. They need centre-backs. He's available. He's affordable. Tottenham have long held interest. And Paratici knows him quite well. So Paratici was at Juventus when Sampdoria signed him. They signed him on Paratici's recommendation because he'd come from Sampdoria. He had still got contacts there and still had a lot of friends in the recruitment department. He's the one that recommended him to Sampdoria. He then considered bringing him to Juventus, but Leon stole a march and nabbed him. There was still a lot of bitterness between the ownership of, of Sampdoria and Paratici and Beppe Maratta because of how they left. Because when Maratta left Sampdoria to join Juve, Paratici was meant to take over from Maratta, but instead he followed him to Juventus. There was still bittership between the 
upper regions of Sampdoria and Paratici, and that's what screwed that deal and how he ended up at Lyon. But it would make sense. Tottenham have long held interest. So does Paratici. He wants to stay in London. Spurs need a centre-back. It's the one that makes sense to me. The only thing that would be funnier is if it was Nat Phillips or somebody. Um, Right, it is Thursday. We're going to rattle through the Twitter questions. I don't know how many there are. Uh, 23, apparently. These may not all be questions we can do today, but we'll get through as many as we can. Might do some tomorrow as well. Um, Okay, Caddy John. Discuss how much faith should be put into Euro performances of targets. Only a handful of matches, superior teammates pushing on for a win, etc. Do you think staff already have their opinions and simply wait for the Euros to pass by? I think smart clubs ignore, for the most part, performances in tournaments. I think there are certain players who show that they're capable. Like, you might find a player playing in a, a lesser league who goes to a tournament and shows up and shows he can compete with a higher caliber of players. You might find a player who levels up when surrounded by better players and you think, okay, well, we've got better players in this club side. If he can do that with his international team, maybe he could do it with us. But I do think for the most part, smart clubs don't sign players based on tournaments. Uh, Liverpool used to do it. They don't anymore. Manchester United probably still do. Like I say, smart clubs don't sign players based on tournaments. Connor Lane, uh, could the Red Bull football model work in England? If so, do you think it's already the, in the long-term planning of Red Bull to have a club in the Premier League? I would say yes, but I don't think they'll buy a Premier League club. I think what they'd look to do is buy a League One club and then try and build them up over a couple of years, maybe even a championship club if there's a financial opportunity available. The biggest problem from a Red Bull point of view, though, is Red Bull don't like to lose money. They like to operate at a profit no matter what they're doing. And the issue is that life in the Championship League One means losing money. Every single club is losing fortunes. And that may be something that would hold Red Bull back. Now, look, they probably lose money on Leipzig, in all fairness, uh, because they've got about seven fans and they do spend a decent amount of money. But remember, they, they generate so much from the sale of players. I do think it would make sense for them to come to England. As for whether it could work or not, yeah, I do think so. I do think so. You can only obviously own one club in the country. So for a club like, say, Liverpool, there is a possibility that they could buy you know a club in France, a club in Belgium, a club in Austria, and do what City's done. The Red Red Bull model, though, I do think will work. Like, Brentford's model is quite similar to Red Bull's. and their, their recruitment process is different, but the idea is still the same. Buy players, develop them, sell them for huge profit, and then reinvest that money in two or three more players. They've also got Mitteljand as part of their little network there. So it's a similar concept. So, yeah, I do think Red Bull could make it work. Um, my surname is Khan. Would Renato Sanchez be a good replacement for Ginny Wijnaldum? And should all this talk about Liverpool not buying be taken with a pinch of salt? Take it with a massive jug of salt. Uh, look at who it's coming from, in fairness. Um, would Ronaldo be a good signing? Yeah, I, th- I think he would. I-, I genuinely do. I think he's a more natural fit into the role that Ginny played than Ginny was. Because Ginny's an attacking midfielder by nature. Ronaldo is more suited to being box-to-box. 
he's more natural from a defensive point of view than Ginny. His ball retention's excellent. He gives you more drive in midfield as well, and he's comfortable carrying the ball. And when he unleashes a shot, you don't want to be stood in the way. Um, the big A614. A while back, you and Carol did a top 20 managers list. Of the top five, who would make the best coach for a national team and why? That's myself and Carol Matchett on Anfield Index, the AI Scouted podcast. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, get on it. Um, so our top five was Pep, Klopp. Now, this is not an order. It's just I'm trying to remember. Pep, Klopp, Simeone, Conte, and Allegri. They were our top five. Conte has done the national team thing, and I don't think he enjoyed it. I don't think Simeone would work at international level. Not at this point. I think he needs the day-to-day. Pep would work really well at international level because what Pep could do is shape not just that team, not just the senior team, but the entire structure of a nation from top to bottom. I think Pep would work really well. Allegri would work from a scene. Like, if you gave Allegri the England team, I think Allegri could win maybe not the next World Cup, but the one after that. If you gave him enough time England have the players to do it. They just need the time. I would say if you gave Allegri the job now, after these Euros, he wouldn't win 2022. But I think he'd make a real go at Euro 2024. And I think the World Cup in 26, I think you'd have to put England among the very favourites. Consider Sancho, Saka, Foden, Greenwood, Rashford, Trent, Bellingham. Rice, Mount, and hopefully then the likes of Konza, Godfrey, Tamori, Gwehi, a fully fit Joe Gomez, perhaps, Ben Chilwell. The goalkeeping thing is the one area you'd need to sort out. You would lack a commanding aerial centre-back, but Godfrey maybe, maybe can develop that side of his game. But the talent is, is unquestionable. And I didn't even mention the likes of Max Ahrens, Reese James, James Justin, Young Carney at, at Villa, who looks a real prospect, James Garner, Brandon Williams perhaps can step up again. I think he needs to be a left-back rather than a right-back. Um, but I do think England have the talent. I just think they need a manager who can get the most out of it. And what Allegri always does is get the most out of things. So I think Allegri could be good. I think Pep would be sensational. Klopp I'm unsure of. I think Klopp might be better day-to-day. Conte and Simeone I think are better day-to-day. Don't think Conte particularly enjoyed his stint as manager of the national team. Um, <laughs> Mr. Feeling, all right. Uh, what, would, what would a Sam Allardyce versus Tony Pulis five-a-side squad look like? Right, well, Tony would absolutely have Ryan Shaw cross at centre-back. Whereas Big Sam... Oh, Big Sam. Big Sam would have Carroll up front, Kevin Nolan in the hole. He'd probably love a bit of Mark Noble. Um, he might... Uh, Big Sam's funny, though. Like, let's not forget his Bolton team had JJ Akotcha and Yuri Jorkaev. Uh, that he got really good results out of Nicholas and Elke. Like, Big Sam wasn't always 
this. He was, and then he wasn't, and then he was again. Tony Pulis has always been Tony Pulis. So Tony Pulis's big uh, five-a-side team are all very tall, agricultural-type people. Um, but Big Sam might, might surprise you. He might go with, say, Hierro at centre-back. Jorkaev and Akacha. And Anelka. I do think he'd love Kevin Nolan, though. He looked like he loves Kevin. Kevin Nolan is to him what Mason Mount was to Frank Lampard. Brought him everywhere. Pulises would look agricultural. That's the best I can do off the top of my head. Um, B. Carolino, who? What's your top five Eastern European players in your lifetime? And since I was born there, what are Romanian players you've enjoyed watching? I loved Jacob Popescu. Absolutely adored Jacob Popescu because he was a sweeper. And I love sweepers. And I love defensive midfielders. And that was a secondary position. Then obviously he played centre-back as well. Jacob Popescu, Hadji obviously, I mean, I think he's quite clearly the best Romanian player ever. I liked Ili Dimitrescu. I thought he was unfortunate at Tottenham. But he was such a talented player, such a graceful player. Used to glide across the pitch. Lovely passer of the ball. Florian Radicheu was quality as well. His runs in behind were great. Adrian Mutu, when he came through at Parma, I think it was the first time I saw him play, was just was brilliant. Never quite the same after what happened to him at, at Chelsea. But I loved Mutu. As for my top five um, Eastern European players, Hadji Stoichkov. Uh, Andre Kinchelskis, Shevchenko. I think I'd have to go Dimitar Berbatov because he's the one with respect to the others, and I don't think he was on the level of the others. He's better than Kinchelskis, but he was the most enjoyable to watch. He was just, if you don't love Dimitar Berbatov, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, well, if you're, if you're, you know, Romanian or or Hungarian, I could probably understand. But if you're just a football fan in general, you've, you've got to love Berbatov. Um, Tom on the cop, you have to fill the areas of need from one, Liverpool's areas of need from one league and one league only. Who are your picks from the Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A and Ligue, Ligue 1? And what league do you ultimately opt for? Right. I think, now this is obviously based on what I would like, I would like to see, but if we, if we stick with, you know, Jurgen Klopp's 4-3-3. I think they need a backup goalkeeper, a backup right back, another centre-back for depth, a starting midfielder, and, an, and a starting attacker. That's what I would want. Um, all right, let's do Bundesliga first. So... Forgetting the backup positions, right? We'll just we'll just focus in on midfield and attack. Those two starters are what I want. From the Bundesliga, I would love Leon Goretzka. I, I just think Goretzka with Fabinho and Thiago would be perfect. He's had a contract in twelve months. I don't know if he's available, but it's certainly worth the worth a try. It, it's certainly worth trying to see if he's available. Um 
Liverpool came quite close to signing him in 2018. Was it 2018? No, 2017. No, it was 2018. It was 2018. In the January, they they thought they had everything done, and then Byron just came in and he he opted for Byron. Um, so he would be my pick there uh, up front. I mean, I mean, Haaland is the obvious one. Uh, Haaland or Sancho are, are the obvious ones, but I mean, they're not they're not realistic. Um. Andre Silva. I, I go Andre Silva. I, I really like him as a player. I think he fits well. He can play as the nine. He can be a support player. I think he'd, he'd help Salah and, and Mane. And obviously, he'd play through the middle and the other two can stay in their positions. Um, La Liga. En Naziri or Isaac. I'd probably go... I go Isaac based on the potential upside. I just think there's there's a lot of real potential upside there. Um, midfield has to be Saul for me. Has to be Saul. I just think he's a tremendous player. I think he fits really well as a Wijnaldum replacement. Um, the French league, I'll go Ronaldo Sanchez. Attacking player is tough. I would have loved Memphis. I love Memphis the pie. I think he's just. I think he's brilliant. Um, Lille don't have an attacker that I'd want. Monaco don't have an attacker that I'd want. I'm not going to say Mbappe because it's ridiculous. I think I would go with Jeremy Doku. Do you know what? I'd go, I'd go Kamavinga in fairness. I would go Kamavinga before Renato. I'll, I'll just go Kamavinga and Jeremy Doku. Both from Ren. The other one I really like. I really like a lot of players at Lyon. Um, Bruno Gomeric I really like Maxence Kakarat I really like but I think I'll go Kamavinga yeah Kamavinga and um, and Doku play Mane on the right and Mo through the middle and then Syria Barella for sure is the midfielder Um. Vlahovic is the obvious pick. To be less obvious, I re I really, really like Kulosevsky. I really like Kulosevsky. And I wonder if you could convince Juve to do something silly. They've they've been silly for a few years. Uh in terms of who I would go for, I think I go Saul and Isaac. I think I go with the La Liga duel. Um B. Carolano again. Would Salah be less efficient on the wing if an out and out striker comes in, considering Klopp is unlikely to change the two striker system? I I wouldn't rule out the change with two striker system. I really wouldn't. Um but yeah, I do think he would be if you brought in if you brought in a guy who just scores goals, 
I think he could be. But I think if you bring in an Isaac uh, and a Naziri, even an Andre Silva, I think they're all-round play. You'll still get loads out of Mo. But I think the key role then is that right-sided midfield role because Mane will hold the width on the left, but you're going to need that right-sided midfield role to create a bit of width on the right as well because Mo is going to play narrow. And it will, even though it will line up 4-3-3, it will shift to a weirdly outsized 4-4-2. Um, but yeah, if you just if you ask him to be an out-and-out winger and, you know, get chalk on his boots, you're not going to get the best out of Mo. Um, Zane LFC, do you think Liverpool have not got enough credit for finishing third despite the problems? We had to rely on the sixth and seventh choice centre-back and we've seen certain pundits highlight how Man United missed Harry Maguire. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Liverpool deserve much more credit than they've been given. Much more credit. To get top four in the fashion that they did, to get third, not never mind four, to get third in the fashion that they did with Nat Phillips and Reese Williams as the centre-backs is, is right up there with the greatest things Jurgen Klopp has ever achieved in his career. It phenomenal. Um, as for oh, sorry, any transfer rumors? Uh, also, I like your intro music. Is it available? The music is by a band called Fox Haunt. Uh, you'll find them on Spotify. You'll find them on um, on uh, I think it's Fox Haunt Fox Haunt Band on Twitter. Let me just quickly have a. I think it's Fox Haunt Band on Twitter. Uh, yeah, Fox Haunt Band on Twitter. And I believe the song is called On My Mind. I think it is. I I can't remember. But Fox Haunt is definitely the band anyway. Um, no, sorry. I think it's Open Water is the name of the song. Do you know what? I'm going to take a quick break here. And <laughs> we'll come back. I'm going to know the name of the song. Right. Welcome back. Yes, the song is called Open Water by, by Fox Hunt. And yeah, it's available Spotify, iTunes, anywhere like that. Um, good bunch of lads as well. Follow, give them a follow on Twitter. Um, as for transfer rumors, not really. Danielle Malin's name's been linked. I, I do like him. I think he'd be a good signing. Um, the new house stuff continues to ramble along. I, I, I just don't know. Nothing, nothing substantial at the moment. Um, YNWA Foodie, you are the newly appointed head of FA in Premier League. What changes would you make and why? So the first thing I would do is I would fire all the referees. No, most of them. Um, I would change the VAR thing straight away because that's the thing that bugs me the most. I I just think it's it's just so badly done. Um. Train people just to be VARs, not have referees do it, have no connection between the two groups, or have the entire thing centralised, and you wouldn't know the name of who the VAR was for each individual game. That just wouldn't be a thing. Uh, what else would I do? Um, I would change the academy rules. I think it's this idea of Category 1, Category 2, Category 3 is all well and good, but what it's causing is lower league clubs to get absolutely trolleyed when they have a really good young player that they've developed and then a, a bigger club wants to come along and steal them at the age of 15 or 16 uh they're not getting properly compensated i would remove all clubs who are playing in europe from the league cup um 
rather than have fourth place win a spot in the Champions League, I would have the FA Cup winners plus fourth, fifth and sixth go into a playoffs to get into the Champions League. Now, if you win the FA Cup and you finish first through third, then it just goes to seventh in the table. Um, I think I'd reduce the Premier League to, to 18 teams. I think you'd get a higher quality at that point. The problem then is the knock-on financial effect into the, into the championship. I think financial restructuring of the championship is something that needs to be considered. Uh, I would abolish the current fair and proper ownership test because it's nonsense and become much more stringent on that. I kind of like to see a salary cap, or not a salary cap, but a wage cap brought in. Um, but that's not, again, it's not really a realistic thing. I would end Sky and BT's cartel. I'd be one of the big things. Make it a proper free market for the games. I, I One of the things I would look at doing is creating my own online streaming partnership. Try and get you get one of the major streaming streaming platforms, either Amazon or Netflix, or even get in touch with gets you know Zuckerberg at Facebook. Create your own Premier League TV website app, the whole shebang. All the games are on there, and you can either pay a subscription just to get your own team's games, or pay a subscription to get all the games in the league, uh, similar to what the NFL and the NBA do. So much better than the current setup. That's one of the things I would I would definitely do is Premier League TV and make it affordable. That's got to be the main main goal here. Make it affordable. Cut out the middleman. Just sell the games directly yourself to the fans. I think that's I think you'd make more money than you would from the current TV contracts. And fans would have to pay less. So that to me would be important. Um Shamil0201, I have a two-part question. How has Gerard developed uh, tactically as a manager from his first game at Rangers to winning the title? And where should he go next to improve? I'd like to see him in Germany or France. Um, I would like to see him in Germany or France as well. The problem is I don't know what his grasp of the language is. And if you're going to Germany, you really do need to speak German because the players in general just they tend to have a lot more homegrown players than we do here in England, where foreign managers can get away with a little bit more without speaking English. Uh, tactically, he has improved. He's changed his shape. He's changed his setup. He's become a lot more... Flexible is the wrong word. He's become better with in-game changes. When he was first there, he would... You could tell he put a lot into his pre-game. And it's set up in his shape. And if it went wrong, it went wrong. And that was just it. Now we see him react to things a little bit better. Now he does have a good team around him. Michael Beale being the key one. He seems to be the real sort of tactical one behind it all. Gerard is, you know, he's a manager, an overseer, a motivator, whatever. Man management seems to be very strong now. Man management wasn't a strength when he first went there. In his interviews, he would throw players under the bus. He would deflect blame from himself. Now he seems much, much better. Seems to have grown a tighter unit there at Rangers. He's borrowed heavily from Klopp in terms of his tactical setup, 
his shape, how they play, triggers for their press, things like that. But that's what you do. Half of management is stealing ideas from somebody else. Um, I do think he has evolved quite substantially. I think Michael Beale has been a big, big help to him since he joined. He'd been in Brazil with Sao Paulo, I think, as an assistant manager. Really, really good, formerly at Liverpool. Um, I think he's been huge. But I think Gerard just as I think he's become a lot more comfortable with being a manager. And I think one thing he's done, which is a big credit to him, is he's realized, which many great players don't when they go into management, that the players he's managing are not of the level that he was at. And he set his expectations to a more realistic level. When he first went there, I think he expected every player to be able to do what he could do. I think that used to frustrate him. Now I think he's a lot more comfortable with things. Uh, Omar, your team for England versus Germany. First, what you think Southgate will pick and then what you'd pick. So what I think he'll pick is a back five with Walker and Shaw's wingbacks with Stones, Maguire and Mings as a three. Phillips, Mount and Rice in midfield and Sterling and Kane up front. That's what I think he will pick. What I would pick... Hmm... I'd go back for, I'd go Walker, Stones, Maguire and Shaw. I'd go Saka on the right wing, Sancho on the left wing, Sterling and Kane as a front two. And Phillips and Bellingham in midfield. I just go and play them. And back the players you have. Back the talent you have at your at your disposal. I think England can beat Germany, but they need to be brave to do it. Um, Callum Perry, do you think FSG will try to develop the Kenny Dog Leaf stand, considering the houses will have to be knocked down if they want to mirror the main stand? Apparently, they already own some. So yeah, apparently, Liverpool have been buying up houses for a long, long time. So apparently, they do own quite a few of the houses behind. Um, where the Kenny Dog Leaf stand is I think ideally they would like to I don't think it'll happen in the short term but maybe three, four years from when they finish the Annie Road end they might do it then um, I'd like to see it happen I would I think it'd be great if you could push that capacity it's at 54,000 I think it's going to go to 61 is that right from the is it, is it, yeah, I think it's 61,000 due to go to. So, I mean, what can you get? Can you get to 70,000? That could be special. 70,000. The cop would be the smallest of the stands then by quite a distance, but the cop is the cop, so it's where the noise will come from. But if you get 70,000 at Anfield, and I think because the... Because the noise comes from the cop and then the way you'd have the stadium designed, I think it would hold the noise in really well. So, yeah, I'd love to see that happen. I don't know how, I don't know how realistic it is. It's definitely doable. It is definitely doable when you consider how they did the main stand, how they're doing the Annie Road end. The Annie Road end was seen as problematic for years and they figured it out. So was the cop, or so was the main stand. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the Kenny, the Kenny Leaf stand would be as well. Um, Connor Lane again, what are your ex expectations for Kanata's level of performance? 
in the league next season, I think he's going to surprise a lot of people. When I see the reaction to Diaz, I think Canada is going to surprise a lot of people. He's going to be playing next to Virgil as well, remember. So I think he's going to come in and immediately be one of the six or seven best defenders in the league at worst. That's not my honest opinion. I think he'll be one of the six or seven best defenders in the league. Um, C. Topher Wall. Uh, Chris Wall. Um, with Liverpool needing in need of a central midfielder and potentially right back cover, what are your thoughts on Ridley Baku to come in and cover both, spo- both spots? Um, also seeing you float the idea of Harvey Elliott as part exchange and potential deals for other players. Do you not see a future for him at Liverpool? No, I do see a future for him. It's just that if I can get a higher level of player like uh, Jude Bellingham or Jaden Sancho, I do it. It's it's just as simple as that. Um, I, I think Harvey's really, really talented. I think he's a special kid, but I would, if I could get Sancho or I could get Bellingham, I, I would just do it. Because they naturally fit into how we play. Harvey doesn't really. And the team would have to change a little bit. The shape would have to change to get Harvey into it. I think he's more suited to being a right winger in a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1 than a right-sided forward in a 4-3-3. I think he's better from deep, more more space, more, more area to play in coming from that that deeper position, carrying the ball, rather than just trying to beat that last man. I don't think he's got that real burst of speed that Klopp seems to want in those wide forward roles. But I, I do absolutely think he, he's going to be a tremendous player. And if he sticks around, which I hope he does, I, that was just me floating ideas in the hope that Liverpool could pull off a deal for one of those two. Um, but I, you know, obviously you'd rather keep him. Ridley back who I do like. Now, I think Liverpool need a starting midfielder, and I don't think he's that. As a backup right back and as a depth play, depth piece who can play multiple positions in midfield, I absolutely think it's a great idea. Uh, very, very talented, lightning quick. Plenty of room to grow as well. Plenty of plenty of talent to move into. Um, Mander Fatapakira. Fatapakira. Sorry, bud. Supermanzu, that's what I'm going to call you. That's your name. Um, who's the best option for Liverpool, Basuma or Sanchez? I think Sanchez. I think Basuma's good, but I think Basuma's the poor man, Sanchez. Um, J89, how highly do you rate Billy Gilmore, Nathan Peterson and David Turnbull? What level can they reach? Billy Gilmore, I think, is a star. I think Billy Gilmore can be a top-class player for a top-class team. Turnbull's an interesting one. I really like him. I think if he'd got a bit more pace, he would have a similar kind of ceiling. He is only 21. Great set ball, set pieces, great dead ball delivery, good passer, great crosser. I think in a... If you were going to play a 4-4-2 and you wanted somebody to play a narrow right side who could step out and deliver high-caliber crosses from right wing, I think David Turnbull would be perfect. And he's two-footed as well. So he can swing it with his right foot or cut back and go with his left foot. Um, I don't think he's quite as good as Gilmore. I don't think he's got quite the talent as Gilmore. But certainly... Certainly will go on to have a very good career. I think he can definitely play in the Premier League for a team who looks to finish somewhere between 5th and 10th. 
Um, Patterson, I like. Patterson, I really like. I think he is going to be... I won't say he'll be as good as Kieran Tierney, but I think he's got a similar level of talent. Like Tierney, I think he's going to be able to play multiple positions, right back, right wing back, or right in the back three. I think he could do a job in midfield because he's very, very comfortable on the ball. Um, fullbacks are tough. I again, like I like I think it's all down to the work he's going to be willing to put in, and he seems to be a good kid with a level head. I know he got caught up in that lockdown nonsense, but I do think maybe he can hit the kind of level Tierney's hit, if he stays fit. Tierney's had injuries which have hampered him a little bit, but I do think he can get to that level. I think I'd go Gilmore as a near uncertainty to be a top player. Turnbull's more talented, but I think Patterson's path to maxing his talent is clearer. That's That'd be me. I, I like all three. I think Scotland are in a good situation uh, with those three, with Aaron Hickey. Now, it's a little bit unfortunate that Hickey is nominally a left-back and they have Andy Robertson, who's one of the best left-backs in the world, and uh, Kieran Tierney. But Hickey can also play in midfield a little bit. So, I mean, I suppose the ideal for Scotland would be to play Hickey as the right wing-back. He's more dominant, I think, on his left foot, but he is a, he's good with his right foot. Him on the right, Robbo on the left, and then Tierney and Patterson as sort of the flanking centre-backs, either side of whoever, whoever that central defender is going to be. Then you get Gilmore. For now, obviously, Gilmore McGinn. I suppose McTominay as your three. And then maybe Turnbull off a striker. It's not the best use of Turnbull, though. Turnbull maybe is a wing-back if you wanted to be really exciting, but um, then you, you lose Hickey. But there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of real talented players that Scotland have at their disposal that are you know young, up-and-coming. It's the best Scottish era in a long time. It really is. When you take from McGinn, Robertson, and that kind of 26, 27 age group and work downwards... Go down to about 16, 17. That's probably the best group of Scottish players in a 10-year window that they've had since the 70s. 70s slash 80s. It's definitely better than anything I've seen in my lifetime anyway. Um, okay, last ones. From Sports uh, sports Lens. Who are five players that surpassed your expectations? Who, do you th- who, didn't, who you didn't think would be great? Sorry, who you didn't think would be good but became great? Harry Kane... For sure is always the one. Sadio Mane is another. Um, I didn't think it would be good, but I, I thought Mane would be good. I didn't think he'd be great. But anyway, um, Leon Goretzka. I knew he was going to be good. I didn't think he'd be this good. Uh, he's definitely surpassed my expectations substantially from what I saw as a young player uh, when he first went to Schalke. Just He looked a little bit lost in midfield. But as he grew and he, he grew into his body is what happened. He must have had a, I think he had a growth spurt at some point in his late teens. And because he just always looked all arms and legs. Um, that's three. 
Um, Rashford. I, I again. I, I thought he'd be good. I didn't think he'd be as good as he is. When I, I, I remember seeing Rashford, when he was like sixteen, seventeen, in a youth game, and he just looked like he was all pace. He looked like a little bit like a Theo Walcott type. Uh, thankfully, he's a lot more than that. And a fifth one. Hmm. Ginter. Matthias Ginter. Again, he's not great. He's he's a long way from great, but he is better than I thought he was going to be. Um, I remember the first time I saw him play, he just moved to Dortmund, and he looked absolutely lost. He just like looked like a lad. And he, he came with a, a big reputation to Dortmund, but he just looked like a lad who had absolutely no idea what he was meant to be doing. Uh, I'll go those five. I know Ginter's a bit of a cop-out because he's not a great player, but the other one's Goretzka, Mane, Kane, Rashford. I think they're great or borderline great players, and I, I they have, they've all exceeded my expectations of them. Um, do you envisage envisage an African uh, country winning the World Cup in your lifetime? What like uh, another? I might get another nine, ten World Cups. If I'm, if I'm lucky, I might get ten World Cups. That'll get me to near eighty. That'll get me to eighty, uh, near enough. Be seventy-eight maybe. Um, yeah, I think so. I do think so. I think what we're seeing from Africa over the last thirty years, the leap that they've taken from Cameroon stunning the world by beating Argentina in. 1990 to now and the expectations that are placed on African teams and the sheer quantity of immense talent now coming out of Africa as more and more academies are established. I do think so. I think we need more investment, more academies, more opportunity for these young players, better pathways. We need real legislation that stops agents taking them, changing their names and ages and sticking them in random clubs in Lithuania and stuff where they, if they don't work straight away for whatever reason, the temperature, the atmosphere, the food, whatever, that they don't just get binned off. More Nordelsjand. That's what we need. More of them, more Salzburgs. The Red Bull network has been great with that. I do think so. I really do think so. Like you look at the talent coming through from like Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria have been at the top for a long time. Cameroon, obviously. Ivory Coast. I think I think those countries, I think one of them could win it in the next 40 years. Um, I hope so, anyway. I really do. I think, imagine what it would do for the game. Imagine what it would do for the game. And that's one where the whole continent would celebrate. You know? I think it could be a real unifying factor as well. How can UEFA and FIFA tackle homophobia in football? This week, an NFL player came out, and football still hasn't seen a player come out since fashion. Now, obviously, in women's football, a lot of players do come out, and it's very, very accepted, and it's great to see. But obviously, men's football, toxic masculinity. Uh, but yeah, this week, we did see Carl Nas Nasib, Nasib 
um, of the Las Vegas Raiders uh, come out and uh, announce he was gay. I thought it was really well handled, really well done. Nobody's going to mess with him. I mean, the dude's six foot seven. He's two seventy five. He's a beast. Um, but yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was really encouraging to see his his alma mater, Penn State, to see his team, the Raiders, you know, rally around him and show great support. The NFL came out and supported him. Uh, plenty of former players and current players came out and supported him. Hopefully, hopefully that kind of positivity continues to grow. And what we will see is we'll see some asshole in the stands shed abuse on this season. And I just hope he gets a couple of slaps and then thrown out the stadium. Um, we've seen it in basketball. Jason Collins a few years back, uh, he came out. It was like, well, a few years back. It was about eight years ago now. Um, we remember Michael Sam when he was going through the draft process. He came out and was got great support. Now, his, he was never good enough playing the NFL, obviously. But, you know, he was he was a high-profile player at the time. But yeah, in football, it is it is Justin Fashionu. It is Justin Fashionu, and the thing with Fashionu was, I mean, we're talking about the early '80s when all the rumors about him began. He'd come through at Norwich, uh, really impressive. Had one a uh, move to Nottingham Forest. They, he was the first black player to move for a million quid, and unfortunately. Between deplorable actions by Brian Clough and the appalling reaction from fans, it ruined Justin Fashioner's career. Ruined it. Um, he lasted like a year and a bit at Forest, went on to Notts County, and then he just became a journeyman. Uh, Brighton, LA Heat, Edmonton Brickmen, Manchester City, West Ham, Leighton Orient, Hamilton Steelers, South Hall, Toronto Blizzard, Letterhead, Newcastle, Torquay, never played for Newcastle, just was there for a little while, Airdrionians in Scotland, uh, Trelborg in Sweden, Hearts, Atlanta Ruckus, and Myanmar Rangers. Now, he looks like he did himself a nice big tour of uh, North America. So, like, he played a bunch of football. He played... 365 games, scored 133 goals. The issue was, when he was leaving Norwich, he was seen as a potential England international. He had 11 England on 21 caps, scored five goals, was a, a really, really big talent. And it just never, ever happened for him after he went to Forest. He scored goals, did well for Notts County, did well for Edmonton. Uh, well for Hamilton and Torquay and Miramar Rangers. I think that's in. Is that New Zealand? Yeah, New Zealand's an amateur club. Um, but never became the player he should have been. And obviously, his life took a turn for the worse. Uh, he came out. He came out officially in 1990, after like eight and a half years of speculation around his sexuality um, moved to America, had some legal problems, obviously took his own life and it was very, very horrible. Uh, died at the age of 37 in, in 1998. And like I say, he just, he never had the career he should have had. And when you consider his brother, John Fashionu had a fraction of his talent and yet 
had a, a much better career. Um, it, it did just, it, it ruined his career. And I think it has been, it has been difficult for other players to, to come out. We, look, we, we, we know that there are players that are gay. We ha- there has to be. The law of averages says there has to be. There has to be quite a few of them. Uh, Thomas Hitzelsberger came out after his career, not during his career. He's probably the most well-known player to come out, I would say. Um, but he waited till after his career because he didn't feel comfortable coming out while he was an active player. I don't know what UEFA and FIFA can do is the honest answer because you're always going to have bigots everywhere. We, like, we're still battling racism in football. And a huge proportion of players are black. A huge proportion. So there's a much better culture around football in terms of acceptance of players of other race. But there's no culture around acceptance of homosexuality in football. I'm sure most of his teammates would be fine, if not all of them. Like if uh, Player X, we don't know who he is, but you know, I'm sure there'd be support from the club. But you just don't know with fan bases, with you know, media campaigns that would like we've we've seen the the mail and that other rag, the red top, launch campaigns against players because they're black and they don't like them. Bakayo Saka is the latest one. Exclusive news: Bakayo Saka buys a house. Like, go away! No one cares. He bought a house. Leave the boy alone. Um, Raheem Sterling got it for years, and that, and that is because they're black and successful. Imagine what it could be like. Imagine what it could be like, and like without a massive support network of other openly gay players. Like, when a black player gets racially abused, other black players will come to the defense, rally around them, because they are black players as well, and they know what it's like. But they black players can't hide being black. So they can't shy away from it. Gay players can hide being gay, and I think they do shy away from it because I I don't think they feel supported enough. I don't think they'd get the protection that that they'd need. I don't think they'd have that same kind of community feel within the game. And you just know there would be fan bases that would just be horrendous, utterly horrendous. When you see people booing for Black Lives Matter, like I remember growing up watching the St. Patrick's Day parade from Dublin on television and going to it one or two years, but watching it on television and watching the, the gay and lesbian float at the parade getting pelted with it started off with eggs and tomatoes. One year there were bricks thrown, right? That's the, the, now we are going back to the late eighties, early nineties here, and Ireland has progressed massively from a country where being gay was illegal less than thirty years ago to a country that has approved same-sex marriage and um, and for uh, gay couples to adopt and such like that. But that doesn't mean the whole country agrees with it. Like, you know, the county of Roscommon 
<laughs> they they shame themselves. Um, and you know that's going to be the same in England. And I I think Ireland and England are probably two of the more accepting cultures. You know, I, I think if you, you 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 see the racism that comes out of certain countries, I think it would be the same. Like look look at what the Hungarians have done. Look at what they've done. A massive props to Leon Goretzka for what he did. But look at what they've done. And look like look at UEFA that the goal to come out yesterday and make a statement in support of 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 equal rights for gay people and and support of the gay community and they refused to allow the city of Munich to light the stadium up in the pride flag because it's not they're not political the city of Munich should have done it anyway and credit to the german uh, government or whoever made these decisions to light up stadiums all across the country and light up other monuments brilliant absolutely brilliant to see i just i don't see that I don't I don't see that a, a player will come out and do it. I just don't. If one does, if a high profile one did, I think we could see not the floodgates opening, but we could see quite a few think, okay, well like he's it's been okay for him, I can do it now. It might give others more confidence to do it. But I mean how many of these players aren't even out to their own families and friends? How many of them are living a life that they don't tell people about because of a fear of rejection? It must be very, very difficult. I have gay friends and some of them are out and some of them aren't. They're out to maybe their friends, not to their families. And that's, imagine, imagine not being able to tell your family who you really are. Imagine having that fear. And that's people I know. There's, I'm sure everybody knows people like that. There's some people that are gay and just deny it because they don't want to accept it themselves. So if you can't accept it yourself, you know, you're not going to expect other people to accept it. Now other people should accept it because what you do in your life is your choice. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think so. I don't think we'll see it. I, I, I'm, it's, it's horrendous, but I don't think we'll see it. Um, I think that is it then. I think that is the last question. I'm going to quickly wrap up with the gossip because this has gone long. I didn't get a podcast yesterday, so I have loads to say. Um, Lionel Messi is yet to make a decision over whether to stay at Barcelona with one, just one, league, one week left on his contract. Now, that's from Marca, who are basically a Real Madrid fanzine, so I wouldn't put too much stock on whether he's made a decision or not. I imagine he has. I think Barca would be a lot more panicked if he hadn't. Um, Manchester City will have uh, would be willing to wait a year to bring in a striker if they were unable, unable to sign Harry Kane from Tottenham this summer. So I'd imagine that would mean they're going to wait for Haaland if they can't get Kane. Or maybe they'd go back for Kane next summer. I, I don't know. Um, I don't think they'll get Kane. I, I think Levy will play, will play it tough and I think he'll, he'll keep Kane. And I think... I think Kane loves Spurs enough that he will just put his head down and get on with it. But I do think a conversation would take place where Levy would say, look, if we don't achieve these goals this summer, you can go at X price next summer. Um, Tottenham are planning talks with Nuno Espirito Santo about taking over as a new boss, having previously ruled him out. I mean, the, the, it's uh, not even going to talk about that anymore. Tottenham's managerial. Let me know when something happens. 
other than that, I don't want to talk about it, talk about it anymore. Everton playmaker James Rodriguez representatives have offered him to Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, AC Milan and Napoli as he appears ready to leave to go to St. Park Club. Well, Everton would be would be well shot of him. As as good as he is, as talented as he is, you, you can't have a guy just that disappears on holidays a couple of times a year and then just doesn't bother turning up for the last day of the season. Fit or not, he should be there. Uh, he's not good enough for Real Madrid. Uh, Simeone would, would destroy him. Maybe AC Milan. Napoli could be an interesting one. Napoli could be a very, very interesting one. Um... Yeah, I'd be quite interested to see how he'd do at Napoli. I think it'd be interesting to see him and Insigne play um, under Spalletti. But yeah, Napoli makes the most sense of of that group, I would guess, as a starter. Because I don't think he'd start for Milan. Uh, Real Madrid are set to challenge Arsenal for the signature of Alexander Isaac. I'd imagine there'll be plenty more clubs in and probably clubs with more money to spend than either of those two. Real are not going to... Real are not going to do it. Let's be fair. Real know what they want. They want Mbappe. They want Haaland. There's a lot of talk they already have an agreement with Mino Raiola and Haaland for next summer and that once the buyout kicks in, they will just pay his buyout and that's that done. Mbappe is out of contract. A lot of talk recently that he won't renew that he's told PSG he wants to leave. If they don't let him leave this summer, he's going to leave next summer. Real's dream is Mbappe and Haaland, and they're not going to do anything that compromises that, including signing a striker this summer. When they already have Benzema, they can just keep Luka Jovic for a year, and then next summer they bring in the two they want, and then God bless everybody else. Paris Saint-Germain has made contact with Sergio Ramos, whose contract at Real Madrid runs out at the end of the month. Uh, it would be a very Paris Saint-Germain move, and by that I mean a bad one. PSG have agreed a deal with Inter Milan to sign Ashraf Hakimi for £60 million, including bonuses. I noticed that Romano deleted a bunch of his tweets where he talked of Chelsea's bids uh, that didn't happen. Um, Wolves are interested in taking Billy Gilmore on loan. It's from Football Insider, so I'd I'd call it trash. Um, but if they're selling Neves, then Billy Gilmore makes sense to come in on loan. Uh, Ryan Bertrand is set to join Leicester on a free transfer. That's a good signing for Leicester. They could, they needed a left-footed left-back, a more experienced one. Um, I don't imagine he'll be a starter. I think we'll see Castanier probably play left-back next year with Pereira right-back, uh, maybe his wing-backs. But Bertrand is a, is a good, solid a uh, good solid signing for them, uh, especially on a free. Like I wouldn't pay money for him, but on a free, you can't really argue. Brentford are close to signing Nigerian midfielder Frank Onyeka from Danish club Mitteljand. Talented defensive midfielder, great ball winner. Four goals, four assists in 41 games last season. Uh, I thought he was... I didn't see a whole lot of Mitteljand outside the Champions League this season. Last season, the 19-20 season, I did. I thought he was better that season than what I saw... This season, two uh, two Danish titles to his name, though. So he's he comes with, with a good track record of, of success. Arsenal are confident of tying uh, Emile Smith's role down to a new contract, despite interest from Aston Villa. If they were to lose him, he'd just sack everybody, just close it up, release all the players and just move on. He'd just give it up. It, Arsenal, what a mess. How have you not done that already? How have you not done that already? 
Axel Tunzebi is expected to leave Manchester United on loan this summer with Premier League and overseas clubs interested in the English defender. If you're a newly promoted team or your Crystal Palace and your squad needs hefty renovation on loan, he'd be a good signing. He's a talented centre-back, just needs an opportunity. Won't get it at United, but um, I, 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 there's a lot to like about him. Physically, he's got great size, strong, good explosive leap, good pace. Might be best suited to playing in a three rather than a back two. But I do think Tunzebi's a good player. And finally, Jurgen Klopp has been impressed by John McGinn. But it would take 45 to 50 million euro to lure the 26-year-old from Villa Park. Right. He is the... I would say he's the sixth best player at Villa. Maybe seventh now that Buendia is there. He's not to say he's a bad player. He's a he's a good player. John McGinn is a good player, but I think he's a good player for Villa. I think he'd be a good player if you wanted to finish between seventh and twelfth, and and push for Europa League. I think that's John McGinn's kind of sweet spot. He's not a top four player. I, for me, he's not a top four player. Um, good player, not great. Good. At, most everything, not great at any specific thing. Um, good passer, good crosser, good shot in him. Covers ground, but, you know, just lacks that X factor. Lacks elite mobility, lacks elite pace. Um, Liverpool being impressed by him doesn't mean they want to buy him. This seems like a nothing story from the Athletic. It's come from the Villa side. Um, I, I, I just wouldn't put any stock in it. They're certainly not going to pay. 45 to 50 million for a 25 million pound player. And that's it. That is the gossip for today. That is the show. Thank you as always. Thank you to Guy. Uh, remember, it is Fox Hunt Open Water. Um, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Podcast Network.